She's a professional aromatherapist, and he is an international wellness advocate for the largest essential oil company in the world. But their love for essential oils has brought them together. Welcome to Fellowship in Essential Oils, where Elizabeth Ashley and Adam Barillet discuss essential oils and their gifts for the body, heart, head and spirit. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fellowship in Essential Oils. Liz, thank you very much for joining me for another week and talk, let's talk about another oil, hey? I'm excited this week because obviously it's, well it's not obvious to everybody else maybe, we're talking about myrrh which is what I've been studying for the past 18 months is the book I'm writing at the moment. So we're, we're coming into the nativity season and everybody talks about how myrrh is the gift of the magi. But I've got so many more interesting stories, which may or may not go into the book because there's so many. So I thought what we could do today, if it's all right with you, Ad, is talk a bit about the process I'm going through with the book, talk some of the stories. Uh, I've got some interesting stuff that I'm definitely probably not going to put into the book that I thought would be really interesting in conversation today. That would be absolutely amazing. And I think, you know, as we as we head towards that Christmas season as well, um, you know, people always hear, oh, yeah, frankincense, gold and myrrh. In aromatherapy, frankincense, known as the king of the oils, gets all the attention, and myrrh really is kind of ushered off to the side as, oh yeah, it's just another oil. It's kind of like frankincense. It doesn't really get to shine its own light or stand in its own spotlight. But I think, yes, it definitely deserves its own center stage at some point in time, doesn't it? I think you've hit the nail on the head, and that was one of the reasons why I decided that this was going to be a book that I wrote because. It's funny, really, because it's gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. With the, with the Melissa, there was very little written. With this, there's so much written through time, so many explanations about myrrh, so many sort of analyses about myrrh, but always frankincense and myrrh. It's almost like they're the same word, you know? And yeah. to me, they're so different. And I know, for example, uh, our friend Vanessa Jean, she loves her Frankie. That's what she call, uh, calls Frankie, so she loves her Frankie. But um, that I think so much has been forgotten about myrrh because actually when we go back, myrrh was probably the more important of the incenses. Uh, and also, most certainly, it was the most important in terms of it being a medicine. So if you look at the Ebers papyrus, which dates to around about 1500 BC, um, it's, a, it's a medical papyrus and it uh, contains around about 300 um, medical prescriptions. And a vast percentage of them are, you start with myrrh and honey. You start with myrrh and honey, you start with myrrh and honey, and then other things are put into them. So myrrh at that point was their most important uh, medicine um, and also their most important funerary medicine, um, which we'll talk, we could talk about later on because that is really interesting in its own right. Um, but also... It was a, a, an important perfume. Uh, some of the most like famous perfumes of the time were had a myrrh based to them, which of course is still important today. It's such a, a base fixative in perfumes because it adds longevity. Um, so, so again, so no, not really frankincense from that, uh, that point of view. And also a really, really important offering to the gods. Very much so. So strap in, everyone. We've got lots to share with you today. But I thought maybe we should first, before we dive into the stories and the mythology and the historical uses, from a practical level, as an aromatherapist, when would you reach for myrrh? So I always start with a story. Everybody, I would think, who watches this now would know that I am from a, li a long line of aromatherapists now. And uh, I was born an aromatherapist, if you like. So actually, I was born in ballet shoes. My, I was a, a ballerina from the tiniest age. And I was a really good one. And uh, I never wanted to be anywhere else but in the, in the studio. And so consequently, I had terrible, terrible feet. And I would, I, I don't know if you know anything about blocks shoes, uh, yes, so I do. They, so they, if anybody, they're, they're better now, 
but they were essentially hard cardboard round your toes to there. So this bit here was consistently bleeding all the time. Um, and so I would have blisters on my feet all the time. And we had a, a Kenwood Chef mixer in our house, you know, the big ones. And mum would make marigold and myrrh hand cream or foot cream in that. We'd have a bowl like of that that was stayed by the, the bath with a wooden spoon. And that was just look after your feet because once I didn't. And uh, dye got into them off my blue suede shoes. Um, wow. from Yeah, poisoned it. And even now, I get chillblains on the same place. It's never really recovered. But the myrrh is the best skin healer. And actually, we'll, we'll talk, as I said, we'll talk about funerary processes afterwards. But there was a, a, a real, um, there's a, a, a writing at... Dendera, where Hathor says, myrrh is my putrefaction. So um, as the flesh congeals and starts to break down, over time in the mummification process, myrrh would take its place and become, the, the apotheosis would take place as myrrh took the place of the putrefaction. This mm. was the belief behind the the mummification of the uh, the pharaoh. So this idea of when you have rotting flesh, uh, myrrh is the best thing to use. So blisters, uh, ulcers, particularly lots of m mouth stuff. Mouth stuff's really important. Oral hygiene, um, different slant altogether but a very good gynecological uh, medicine so um a uterine contractor hence why we don't use it in pregnancy hence why we do use it in uh, labor because it makes the uh, the womb contract um amazing um medicine for sti so um we wouldn't I don't think normally use it really in aromatherapy from that point of view, but it's obviously a resin, as as I'm sure people know originally. Lots of different resins. I will touch on that in a minute. But traditional African medicine is that you burn the resin and you sit over it. And mm. that's how you cleanse the vagina. So you would use that like in, in situations, rape, uh, rape or um horrible periods or after after birth um all of that that cleansing so really important from that point of view um so what else In insect repellent um also incredible decongestant um so if you have got really stuffy nose again actually mum used it for sinus treatment she would use it for myrrh lemon and tea tree you put it on and it'd go <laughs> and i always say to people don't use it on kids and the reason for that is because it decongests so fast and then it goes down the throat when they're asleep and then you've got and that's more distressing so on kids, frankincense is the way, but actually it's not as good as myrrh. Myrrh's too strong for children. Mm. Um, and then, of course, it's an aphrodisiac as well. Mm. So I'm sure that I will think of more as we go, um, but that would be my beginning point. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I know for oral health, you know, there are, there are three main oils when it comes to oral health. If it hurts, if it's kind of, a toothache or something like that, then cloves my number one. If there's any kind of, you know, in, infection or, you know, when I used to get really issues with bleeding gums, rinsing with tea tree was absolutely amazing. And then any kind of wounds and cuts, that's where myrrh comes in and in mouth rinses and that type of thing. It's it's kind of, I see it being commonly used. So that's where I thought, but I was interested you said like, you know, and I did, I, I do use it for other wounds. Are there any wounds on the body that you were like, you wouldn't use myrrh for? Not me, no. Yeah. No. Well. Uh, the only the only thing that I would say is over time my sisters convinced me that if something is really like ulcerated or festered, maybe galbanum is a better choice, but I would whack them in together. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I yeah. Think, but... Yeah. It's it's an everything oil to me. Yeah. 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 So you're obviously writing a book on it at the moment and diving into all these different stories about it. How do you, you know, it's based in the Middle East, but it's how, how far have you found that it's spread far and wide in its use? In, into Europe? Has it made it over to any Asian Oh, definitely, practices? yeah, yeah. So actually, so I'll answer that by saying that it's so well studied that it's fairly well understood now that the myrrh that we have today is not the myrrh of the ancients. So myrrh, mm. oh, so like mirror comifora mirror that we talk about is not what they were talking about. They were talking about one that still exists, but there's so little of it. It's not like um, a common one, which is Comifora galadiensis. Um, but there are, but the term myrrh means something from the Comifora species, of which there are many. Uh, mm. And so, for example, the one that you get in Ethiopia is different to the one that you get in Somalia. Um, and what I mean by different, I mean the chemistry of it is different. Um, and then, of course, you have like the ethnobotanical medicine is different because the tribal um, nature of using it is different. Um, but yes, certainly we can trace through history um, that there is really an important still now uh, in India and we can trace the trade routes that there was some of that going into Egypt, into Greece um, at the time. Certainly like in Greece, massive, massive industry at, um, in the ancient world for um, for myrrh. And actually I thought that I would start there if you were interested with the opening to my book because I think that that would be really interesting to, to kind of set the stage if you're happy. And if my dog would let me, be quiet, please. She's very excited that we're in the house today. So <laughs> this will be, I think, the very first page of the book. Don't start. Seleucus Inicator was a brilliant Macedonian military leader. He would eventually become king of the region we call Syria and established the wealthy, the wealthy Seleucid um, Empire, which stretched from Europe to India and would flourish for over 200 years. Born in Greece, Seleucus was placed in service to the king as a boy. Subsequently, he climbed the ranks to become Alexander the Great's deputy. When Alexander died in June 323 BCE, a general named Perdiccas was made regent. Perdiccas promoted Seleucus and gave him control of a thousand men. He appointed him commander of the companions where Seleucus led the battle charge beside him. The political atmosphere of the time was dark. Tribal fracas were sparking everywhere as the power vacuum of Alexander's death was exploited. Perdiccas's response was to attempt to seize Egyptian power for himself by overthrowing its ruler, Ptolemy. He began to formulate plans for incursions, but thus far the region's success rate for such things had been far from sparkling and the plan made his men nervous. In 322 BCE, Seleucus saw an opportunity and headed a mutiny against the regent. Six months later, with his political obstacle assassinated, Seleucus was appointed satrap or governor of Babylon. But the victory was short-lived. Almost immediately, tribal wars rekindled. This time, Seleucus was targeted by the head of one of the most dangerous, Antigonus. With his back against the wall, Seleucus fled and was only able to return to Babylon in 312 BCE with Ptolemy's support. Reenthroned, he was now a man with a mission. Ruthlessly expanding his dominions, he eventually conquered all Median and Persian lands, now ruling not only Babylonia, but the entire eastern part of Alexander's empire. He looked to secure India. After many wars, he was victorious. A treaty was signed and his army was strengthened through marriage of his son to an Indian princess, which gained him land 
and a dowry of 500 elephants and riders. The tutelary god of Seleucus tribe was Apollo. Legend tells that before he left to do battle with the Persians for Alexander, his father told him that actually his biological father had been Apollo. After the god had impregnated her, the god had given his mother an anchor-shaped ring. Now, this was remarkable since Seleucus and his sons all had anchor-shaped birthmarks. All his life then, Seleucus worshipped Apollo. In 288 BCE, a letter was received at Apollo's shrine in Didyma that accompanied offerings of thanks to the god from Seleucus. Three centuries before a star shone over a Bethlehem stable, Seleucus sent gold, frankincense and myrrh to Didyma. Mm. So, that was a, already a trilogy, way before the nativity. So that's fascinating to me. So that's going back 400 years further than we normally go. But yeah, you can, yeah. Go, back, you can go back lots further. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that kind of ties in with a bit of the origin of the um, creation of the myrrh tree, um, because you were saying that, you know, his, the lineage was from Adonis. Yeah. So allow me to jump in with a bit of a myth that I, I absolutely love about Princess Mira, who, um, you know, a delightful young princess who fell in love with her father who happened to be with the king. Now, at one time, all the women of the uh, city were leaving to go and celebrate a different festival. But seeing her opportunity, the Princess Mira stayed behind, hiding away in a cupboard. Now, of the dark of night, and this is probably one of the darkest of the, the myths of the essential oils, and that under the dark of night, Mira would sneak out of the closet at night and make love to her father, the king. And then, before the light came up in the morning, she would vanish, and night after night, she'd do that. Now, after a week, as the women were about to return, Mira, uh, the king, decided, who is this mysterious lover? I need to know who she is. So after having another passionate night with her, he lit a lamp and realised it was his daughter. Now, he was disgusted. He was repulsed. He was absolutely you know, ashamed of himself. And he banished Mira from the kingdom and didn't want to see her again. She ran off to the desert, into the forest, away as far as she could to save her life. But as time went on, she actually realised that from her time with her father, she had actually fallen pregnant. Now, knowing this, she prayed to the gods and said, please, I can't bring a baby into this earth, knowing that, you know, how it was formed, what life it will have, and so on. Please come to my aid. And so what happened is they actually turned her into the Mertry, which continues to bring those tears to the surface, which are the tears of Princess Mira. Now, sometimes the story stops there and people are like, oh, well, that's pretty a bit of a dark, twisted story. But interestingly enough, that baby was born and that baby was Adonis, the most beautiful man in the world. And it's really interesting from such a dark and sordid and sad, miserable story that something quite beautiful came out of that. And then obviously we see traditions going forward as well that goes through that lineage of Adonis. Yeah. So there are lots of tellings of that story. So I can go back a bit further and, and tell you how it's supposed to have begun. Yeah. Um, because I think it helps us to understand the myrrh even deeper, understand that myth. So first of all, we could say there's so many different ways of sort of eking it out. Mm. So the first thing to say is she's not always called Mira. Sometimes mm -hmm. she's also called Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a city that was well known uh, on the end of the Turkish coast because it was one of the first ports that you hit that the Silk Route trade ships hit, and the myrrh would come into there and be traded from there. So its main export was myrrh. So the fact that it was called Smyrna and she was called Smyrna is interesting. So we really know that it, it is to do with myrrh. Mm. Um, so we talk about the, the princess um, Mira, that she fell in love. But Ovid says, mm, no, actually, the poor girl was cursed. 
And the reason why she was cursed was because Kendraish, her mother, had been gloating somewhat and being and like shouting her mouth off when she was a bit stupid, to be honest. And Aphrodite, Aphrodite overheard her saying, "My daughter's happy, more beautiful than Aphrodite." And Aphrodite went, "Is she now?" Right, and she put a curse on her. So she was never in love with her father. She was lusting after her father. And there's a really dark part of the tale where apparently because her father really loved her. You know, this was a, mm. a, a, a and Ovid says at the beginning of the story, he warns his audience that they should brace themselves because this is a troubling story because the nature of a, a man's love for his daughter is supposed to be a beautiful thing. And this is an unnatural tale. He stresses that. Um, and he, at one point, he even says, my darling, what kind of husband would you like? And she says, one just like you. And so there's mm. this like awful kind of, oh, God, thing going on. And she's really tortured. And she's like this, this, in the in the text, this this kind of long going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, trying to just kind of get over it, get over it. She can't get it out of her head, mm. and 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 the, and the acting on the stage is you know lots of pacing, and it goes on for ages, and she starts to go into a deep decline. And her nanny, who's looked after her all her life, her nursemaid sees there's something wrong and says you need to tell me what's going on and she does she confides and the uh, nanny is horrified and she says you need to no just no anyway so she eventually uh tries to put it away but that backfires and nursemaid goes into her room one day to ask her a question and she finds the girl hang, trying to hang herself wow and uh, she realises that her love for this girl is so vast. She's got to do something to, to help her. And as you quite rightly say, interestingly, what the, the festival that um, her mother is, uh, her mother, obviously it's Kentreus that is going away, if you think about it, and it's her that mm. set it up. So you, it, that's, not, that's not explicit in the text, but you work it out, oh, my God, this is happening while she's away. At Thesmophoria, which is, she's gone on a Melissa right, oddly. That's what she's ah. going to do. Um, it's called the, the Rites of Series, and they are uh, um, nine days long. And so, also, she is uh, celibate. So, the nursemaid uses that. The husbands have all gone, go off, freedom, we'll let's go and get drunk. And she sneaks up and she says, oh, you don't have to be alone, you know. You can take comfort. I, I know this lovely girl. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll bring it. And she says, I'll bring it. But well, you must promise not to look. And he's like, all right, <laughs> all right. Mm. So, yes, then the story matches up with yours that that they, uh, each night she comes, they, um, well, I'm not going to say make love. They have a sex. She had sex with her father. Uh, until, as you say, the ninth night, he can't contain himself anymore. He lifts, he's he lifts the torch. She's illuminated. The word, obviously, the story is illuminated, uh, and he chases her off with a sword, which is obviously a, a phallic symbol. And she runs and she runs. And when she pleads to the gods, eventually, as you say, she's pregnant. She pleads that she. she an end to this because he doesn't stop running after her he's running and running and running with his sword and she sees no end to this so the gods take um pity on her change her into a murderer and then yeah so the the it is said that the um the myrrh is the tears of the of the murderer and but in another tale, and I can't remember who, maybe Lucius says that how he was birthed was that um, the goddess of, yeah, not Lucius, because the goddess of childbirth is called nearly Lucius, and I can't remember her name. But anyway, the goddess of childbirth comes and splits the tree open and she gives birth to, to Adonis or a uh, 
boar comes out and gores the tree and Adonis is born. Now, it's, what's interesting is at the end of life, Adonis will die. By a boar? Yes, yes. yes. So Very. What, you have, what you often have with these myths about uh, Mur, and there are so many, we could be here all day, um, mm. is the idea that at the beginning, at the end, at the beginning, at the end, and interestingly, we have it with Jesus, that it's there at Nativity and Mary Magdalene is there at the end with Mur to uh, to look after him. Um, and in the Adonis tale as well, what's interesting is, so this baby sat there, poor soul, is in the middle of, the, of Arabia. It's not going to be, it's going to be hot in it. Nobody there to tend to him because his mother blesses a tree. And... It just so happens that, uh, that Eros is shooting arrows and because it's a Greek myth, things go wrong and Aphrodite gets stabbed by this arrow. And the first thing that she walks past is oh, this beautiful child and she falls in love with this beautiful child who is Adonis. And to begin with, she's like, well, sorry, though, our last thing I need is any more children because she's got something like 18 already, hasn't she? So what she does is she puts him in a chest and she says to Persephone, you must look after him. So Persephone raises him. And of course, then he just, well, he, he grows into Adonis. We know what Adonis is. And Persephone's mm. like, well, I don't want you to go. And uh, Aphrodite went, excuse me, I went back. And this big battle ensues. And... They have to, um, Zeus has to get involved and he says, right, enough. Enough with your squabbling. Here's what's going to happen. Four months with uh, um, Persephone, four months with Aphrodite and he can choose what he wants to do with the four months in between. And he chooses to be with Aphrodite. And, uh, which is great, but Aphrodite forgets all her duties as Thea and she's obsessed by this beautiful beautiful man and also she's very worried because she feels like as you do when you love somebody it's something bad's going to happen and he really likes hunting so she has this premonition all the way through this hunting's going to go badly this hunting's going to go badly this hunting's going to go badly she insists on go uh, he insists on going and either this boar gets him or Artemis uh, attacks him for because he killed Hippolytus or something. But anyway, there's three different versions of how he died. But uh, what we what we read from that myth then is that the myrrh is um, part of her love story. Aphrodite mm. never quite gets over him. And one of the reasons that it's used a lot in, Af in love medicine is this idea that when love has gone. So we can say that's for, for, for grieving. We can say it's for neglect. We can say it's for abuse for obvious reasons. We, we've seen that really clearly. But also from a spiritual point of view, when Venus is retrograde, that we talk about how she, she her um duties of Thea were gone also a Venus retrograde uh, thing and when we talk about um, offerings to Aphrodite it should always be myrrh because that's what makes her happy um, so mm -hmm. her, her fetishes are myrrh and honey yeah and it's really interesting when we do look at you know if we think about Aphrodite we often think about all the beautiful flowers and roses and that type of thing but myrrh does always come in as this other oil or also a resin of that 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 love and that healing and i think yeah you, you've mentioned a few different areas you use it for healing i also find it really helpful for um guilt and shame because yes. you know we, we we all to be human is to make er errors and mistakes and it's part of the existence of life but just like princess mira just like aphrodite you know in all the stories that we've gone through and we'll, we'll explore a couple more as well you know the gods and the humans alike make errors in judgment. But just like myrrh physically heals our wounds, we can lean into myrrh 
to heal our emotional wounds as well. And when whether it be lost love or whether we feel that we have, you know, I, I was chatting to someone the other day about it. There's it sucks to be for someone to break up with you, but it's also hard to make the call to break up with someone and to, you know, when love goes wrong and, and there's all the things about, I feel guilty for breaking up with them. I feel br- guilty for hurting them. I feel guilty for um, not trying harder or could I have done anything? So there's all this kind of pain that can come around um, in our love lives or in other parts of life where we're just not proud of what we've done. But just like Mira wasn't proud of what she had done, something beautiful did come out of that in the, in the future, in the form of Adonis. Yeah, and I think that you can follow that story, and I followed it in a followed it. I followed it in a certain way, and I left one gateway closed. But if we went back and we said, "Well, why did uh, Aphrodite put him in a chest? What's that mm. about? Why did she put him in a chest, and why?" did she give him to Persephone? So I think we have to say, well, if if she went to Persephone, then maybe he was dead. Mm. And if he was dead, then that would explain why he was in a chest, because it's a coffin. Yeah. And if he was in a chest, maybe that was the resin. So then we read about, oh, okay, so Persephone is the dead, but she's our shadow. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of, oh, open that door. Oh, that that goes a different way. Oh, that does. That's juicy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So this was actually one of the things that I got, you may have thought, God, she knows this well. Um, And this was what I uh, got really hung up on about because obviously the the priestesses were uh, devotees. They'd gone to Thesmophoria. So this was definitely a Thesmophoria story that they were uh, priestesses of Aphrodite. Yeah, this is a Melissa story. They are priestesses of uh, Persephone. Aphrod- yeah, so, and I kept thinking that I, I can get more from this. And there, and there was so much that didn't go into the book. But um, yeah, this, this story, actually, the more that you get involved with it, the more you realise probably one of the most important stories in history ever, I think. Hmm. Now we've kind of hung around that that kind of Greek kind of Aphrodite Persephone. The Egyptians obviously would have been using myrrh a lot as well, um, and I believe you know it had a connection to Hathor. Did it have a connection to any of the other? Um, where, where, where was it standing for the Egyptian? So that is a massive, massive question that I won't answer fully here. But yeah. um, you understand that we've already talked about how the word myrrh means many different types of plant, uh, all kind of what we call myrrh trees. But um, in Egypt, it was used in so many different ways. And by that, I mean, like there was a resin, there was an oil. Um, you may, if those who read the Bible might recognize the word stacti, which was like um, the, uh, what was it? It was like the bark that had been soaked, then squashed and then boiled and then it was like a well, I don't even know like almost like a treacle of myrrh I, I guess um so it was used in many different ways and there would be and but also in different kind of uh developments so in if you look at like uh mummification they talk about myrrh beers they've made beers of myrrh um, as well as the resin, as well as fumigating, as well as painting the oil, there was this, this beer that was used ceremonially and topically, I guess that's the word you would use, but also green myrrh. So this was um, myrrh that was much younger. And then hmm. there was um, many different grades of myrrh and instances had different names. So. I guess one thing that I've learned this this past couple of months, I didn't really understand before, so I thought I'd share it here because in case it's obvious or maybe everybody else would know, oh, no, I didn't really get that either. So when you when you get involved in, like, mythology, what you realise is there's, there's loads and loads of overlaps. Mm. Uh, and I'd always thought it was, like, from place to place, they got 
they understood that goddess did that and then they understood that goddess did that and then it kind of overlapped but bear in mind that we're talking about tens of thousands of years but what they basically did where was they go oh there's a symbolism put it there oh there's another symbolism put it over the top there so mm. it wasn't like as complicated as i was thinking it was just like that symbol works for me um and a lot of the time it was about punning so if something had a meaning and it had like a different meaning but it was the same word then that symbol kind of became like a magical symbol so these different grades of myrrh i've got it written here somewhere yeah so lisa manish talks about this in her sacred uh sacred luxuries um she says Okay, so some texts identify deities with specific scents or types of incense. Secret in recipes for incense are carved onto the walls of the Temple of Horus at Edfu. Explain that the finest myrrh springs from the Eye of Ray, while other grades of myrrh come from the eyes of Thoth and Osiris and the back of Horus, the divine limbs the spittle, and the bone of the gods. So it's mm. loads of different things. Now, yeah, definitely Hathor, because, because why? Because when somebody died and they went through the awful night where they travelled through the Am Amduat and they went through all of the different tests of knowing, needing to know the names of the gods and they came up against the crocodiles and the uh, serpents and their heart was weighed against a feather it was seen as they were going through the night on a bark and that's like a, a ship mm. and they went through the, the night on the bark and she accompanied the bark so she's the psychopomp she's the escort that helps them to face all the different things that are happening so what's really interesting is already you've got two layers there. You've got this idea that she is accompanying the bark. Her, she says that Mur is my putrefaction. So she is also part of this idea of protecting the physical body while it's putrefying. And that's really important because they believe that as the body putrefied, that the god Set would come and lick the body. And he was seen as being like a dog, being attracted by the smells of putrefaction and decay. Uh, and that's interesting because you kind of get the idea, okay, that you read that they're also worried about dogs digging up bones. In, so they have this idea of like, oh, no, the dog is set. And oh, gosh, so she's in charge of all of that. And she is the Eye of Ray. Um, mm. But also... Oh, the Eye of Ray has many, many different aspects of the goddess, which I won't go into here because it gets too long. Uh, and it is a key part of what I want to put into my book. But um, as you look at each goddess, you see, oh, oh, OK, that kind of might be Myrtu. Oh, that might be kind of Myrtu. So it is very layered. Um, but importantly, uh, it was also as associated with Isis. Uh, and and Nepthys. So Nepthys is a, a less uh, recognised name. So when Osiris died and Isis uh, resurrected him, their brother and sister, as well as husband and wife, and Set and Nepthys are also brother and sister and, and uh, husband and wife and also interrelated to them. So there's like this brother, sister, husband, wife thing going on. And after Set chops up um, his body and casts it about, she asks Nephthys to help her find the parts of the body. And in the funerary um, ritual, the spell actually uh, asks Isis and Nephthys to be with the um, funerary priest to help to rebuild the body again 
And the myrrh mm. is used to actually put the parts of the body back together again. Um, and, and this is really important because their understanding was that the more solid and uh, without fault the body was as it reached the afterlife, the easier an afterlife they would have. Um, and I, I mean, actually, what's really I really enjoyed says so much about me learning about decay in the body as one dies um because the, it's really fascinating understanding the idea of this uh, 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 mummy because as the body starts to declare okay all of these they're called putrefaction juices start to seep and to mm. fester and then gases come, and the more gases that they are that that happen, then actually, would you believe they blow holes in the body? Wow! So they rumble and they make noise, and the and the body moves like this, just as you would imagine. Oh, yeah. So yeah. whoever invented the idea of a mummy in the film was really clever because that's exactly what happens. And so also taking the guts out stops the rumbling and so all of these spells explain that yeah they're really interesting amazing now we could probably go we could probably make this a three-hour episode talking yes, about all the different myths yeah um so i think if everyone doesn't get on the waiting list for your mer book that you know they're, they're going to learn so much more let's start looking this let's start bringing all this history in we've talked about what we use mer for physically and healing of the wounds we've looked at some of the history how are people going to use myrrh on a holistic level in their lives today, do you think? Well, I think any base note is is grounding. Yeah. Uh, I think that... I, I just think from a first aid point of view, any cuts, bruises, abrasions... It's brilliant, and don't bear, and don't forget, we're not just talking about it heals the skin, but it also is really antimicrobial, so it's really antiseptic. Um, science has revealed that it's an incredibly powerful painkiller. Really, it was the most prescribed painkiller before morphine was uh, discovered. So we've got things like opium and cannabis we see, but you'll always see myrrh on the bottle. And now it's been um, elucidated that it is a really strong painkiller. It works in the same way as morphine through the same receptor. It's the mu receptor. And they've been able to quantify that it has a painkilling strength of 10% of, of morphine. That's no small thing. That is a big painkiller. So bear in mind, if your child has fell over, and that, well, I said don't use it on kids before. I meant for snotty noses, for, for cut knees, yes. So if you think, right, it's cleaning it up, it's healing it, it's taking the pain off, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? So mm. I think any kind of first aid. I also think gynecologically so important, so um, helps to um, bring the cycle into alignment. If somebody has, if somebody has really heavy periods, really kind of brings that down. Um, so it balances the system. It also good for um, if you've got like clotted um, menses. So if somebody has a lot of clots, very good as well. So if somebody's got like fibroids, for instance, also extremely good. What else? Um, hemorrhoids, very good. Uh, what else? Something was really just nagging at me then. Sunburn, really good. Can I just clarify? Uh, very good when added to sunblocks, not good enough on its own. Uh, proven scientifically not to be good enough on its own, but nevertheless, was what they would have used it for in, historically. It still can be used now. Um, so, yeah, all of those things, really. And I think if you are upset, there aren't many better oils. That real kind of, um, I guess, in a way, it does have that motherly energy. And, you know, 
for me, it's always been that that guilt and that shame. But I love what you've introduced today of this idea of when, when love goes wrong, um, which it does in so many ways, and also the interplay between love and lust when you know people think that they're in love with someone or they have sex with someone who they think loves them, and it's just you know the interplay between that and the 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 emotional and the heart injuries that can happen to that. I think any of that Mo, would be absolutely amazing for that. Actually, so I was doing some editing. Uh, I don't know, maybe about six months ago. And my sister wrote, it's the oil of the Divine Mother. And I said, that's what I've been writing. And she mm. said, I know I got it off Adam's po- podcast. And I was like, so Adam's saying the same thing as I am. That's just so amazing. That, And it is, it's that feeling of being mothered. Yes, very much so. Yeah, very different to the... Uh, the queenly flowers of rose or jasmine or blue lotus or neroli or something like that, which is more of that expression. It's it's that more um, comforting one. And, I, and I'm going to take us on a bit of a different direction now because, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, you know, you've, you've written this book um, about all the different spiritual and holistic aspects of the oils. How did you come up with it? Did you just make it up or did you just imagine it? And I kind of explain it, it. It's a combination of different things. I look at the myths and the stories. I look at the botany of the actual plants and what we learn from the plants. I look at other people's experiences. I look at the physical healing of it. And I also look at my own visions and things that come to me. Um, and it, it's so interesting how often, like you said, what I start saying, other people are already saying it once I find it later. But I had this really profound experience of Mer once. And I was just like, Mer, you know, as we started off saying, Mer had never really floated my boat. Frankincense, yeah, we use it all the time, blah, blah, blah. It was that the king of the oils. I was like, okay, come on, Myrrh, speak to me. Give me something. So I was smelling the myrrh. And as I was smelling it, I just started to have these visions. And I had these visions of it smells. I grew up in the bush. And what what our common threat in the bush, and you may have seen this on the news, um, is, you know, you, can, you don't need to lock your doors because you're not going to get robbed, but your house could burn down from bushfires. So I'm really familiar with the smell of burning smoke. People burn off all the things in like the autumn to clear, or in the winter to clear all the dead leaves and that sort of thing. And I started to smell this smoke. And then I started to have these visions and was brought back to the burning times. So in Europe, you know, 9 million European women were burnt at the stake or other punish, punishing things because they showed some evidence of possibly a witch or as the word comes from the word wish, which means the wise. So any of the wise women were burnt and punished because of what was happening in that time. Now, I imagine going back to that time, and if you think, what would all the other women who used to be magically or intuitively inclined, what would they have done? They would have gone, okay, we clamp that. We don't show that. We're hiding that attribute of ourselves. And if any of their kids were playing with magic wands or showing anything magical or intuitive, they would, ah, we don't do that. We'll end up on the stake. Those women are our great, 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 great grandmothers. And for many of us throughout the West, whether, you know, lots of our descendants obviously spread out throughout the world, that kind of went through the female lineage. And I believe that myrrh is actually coming back now. And just like we talk about frankincense being the divine masculine or the masculine energy, myrrh is starting to come back up again to helping us to realise that the intellect of the masculine and the intuitive and the magical of the feminine need to be equal again. And so it's. I remember doing this tarot reading once, and after I do the tarot, I bring in my oil oracle cards afterwards. And the lady who I was working with was someone who was very intuitive, very magical, but her mother had told her when she was young, this is a man's world and you need to think and act like a man. And so she'd spent her whole life being a computer um, programmer, totally unmagical. But Juniper Berry and Murr, came up as the two oils that she needed to work with. And she had this um, this kind of bubbling of intuition and, and psychic abilities that just wouldn't go away. And she always knew things, but she'd dampen that away. So I think myrrh is an amazing one for all of us to work with, regardless of what gender we identify as, because we all work in a in a masculine yang way. We, we honour the intellect and we're like, where's the proof? But I believe... And we know that, you know, the feminine archetypes, the priestesses, the the goddess, all these different things have been put on the back seat, just like Myrrh has. And this is the time, and this is why I think Myrrh is slowly coming back up. And I know I've been reading other authors saying, 
Murr's coming, Murr's coming. I think it's that time that she needs to sit on the throne equal with frankincense and that what that translates to in our life is bringing our feminine up and feeling okay with our feminine, nurturing, nurturing, caring, compassionate, empathetic, magical, psychic and intuitive abilities. So it's a really powerful oil, I think, for this day and age as well. Uh, yes, I think you're absolutely right. It's very much the embodiment of the divine feminine, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And but so I, I'm kind of going to unpick a couple of things that you said there mm. because, yeah, the burning times. But the burning times were in Europe. They weren't in um, in Britain. We were ducked. We were drowned. We were hung here. And... Mm. Not only women, loads mm. and loads of men were were. Um, it's definitely I I, I do rec- say it's the women's holocaust, but there were plenty of men that were destroyed for exactly the same reason that they were. They thought that they were witches, mm. and also there were plenty of women and men who were destroyed, not because they were witches. They weren't. They're just because mm. they were pantylers. Or somebody had said something about them, or there was a rumor, and so uh, this—that's a fearful thing. I mean, if you—you're you're quite right that the that the ancestral DNA uh, DNA is massive, and I I do see a lot of it coming up now in a lot of people, um, and without fa- without fail fear is the overwhelming thing and i had to face that myself when i was going when i was doing the book i i would we, we when you do it like dream weaving you have to learn to to drop your attention down into to your womb space i couldn't do it i absolutely couldn't i would i would feel my legs being burnt and melting away and i would like have these visions of being drowned and burned and and i saw it flash that many times and so again, all areas where you can use myrrh. I think that's an excellent point you made. Mm, very much so. So we always like to talk about, you know, astrology. Where, where would you place myrrh with her astrology? So I think it's definitely got two two rulerships. Um, mm-hmm. It's Venus because I'm not going to argue with Aphrodite. Look what she does to people. Um, <laughs> But also, Hathor is the moon, so and and it's about emotions and gynecology is the moon as well as being Venus. Yeah, I would even also slot Mer in with um, you know, when we look at traditional astrology, we've got you know the ten planets or so that we know. We've only got the moon and the Venus as the feminine archetypes, which kind of represent the mother and the lover. But there are, as astrology has evolved, been the more acceptance and almost the opening up of other prominent astrological bodies. And the biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt um, between Mars and Jupiter is Ceres, um, Demeter, which was Persephone's mother, of course, and they're all off at her festival as well. And she seems to govern our nurturing style in our astrology. And when she goes into retrograde, we often all feel unnurtured. And I feel that beautiful energy that Mer has to nurture our wounds, whether they be the physical or the emotional, that you could bring in Ceres energy in there as well. So, you know, if people haven't searched their Ceres sign, you can kind of a simple Google search to bring up a little test where you pop your details in. And it's really interesting. It almost ties in with, we hear about them talking about the, the five love languages and how what we need to be nurtured and to feel loved. And I feel Myrrh and Ceres could be tied in really well in that work as well. That's clever. Also, um, uh, an asteroid, I think, but I'm going to ask you to, to verify I've got that right. But I think that Hygieia. Mm, yep. Uh, Goddess of preventative medicine. Yeah, very much. She, yep, she's another one in that asteroid belt. A lot of people don't realise that between, we've got, obviously... Earth is where it is, and we've got Venus on one side, Mars on the other, and Mercury and the Sun one way. Then we go Mars, and then we've got the asteroid belt, which the asteroids aren't large, but they're close. So when you compare it, when we're considering things like Pluto and Neptune that are millions of light, you know, far, far, far away, these asteroids are going to have actually a bit of a pull. And to go off, I'm going to go off on a little rant and a tangent for a second. Another prominent asteroid is asteroid number 16, Psyche. 
and I'm sure we, we won't go through her myth, but are you familiar with her long myth? Oh, my goodness. Just while well, we're here, then, just wave at Laurie, who watches every week. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Laurie. <laughs> She's, she spends her life studying Eros and Psyche myths. She'll, she'll be so excited that you're going to say this now. Go on. Well, this is, this is slightly distressing to me because I just taught a lesson on, on the asteroid of Psyche, and Psyche represents our soul um, and what we need in a soulmate and what our soul quest is, in a nutshell. Interestingly enough, I started reading and she they believe that she used to be a bit of a protoplanet and she's been hammered so much in the early formation of the universe that she now has this, um, just her core is showing. So her surface is all gone. So she, we actually see in this asteroid who it really is. And it's um, nickel and, nickel and um, iron mainly. And they believe it's similar to the core of Earth. Now, this week, as we're recording, actually tomorrow, as we're recording this kind of thing, um, they're actually sending um, NASA and SpaceX are spending sending a spacecraft to go land on Psyche because they believe that uh, the metals on there are worth something like $400 quadrillion and the idea of mining an asteroid. No, a new so rate. We're meant to be talking about oil. Of. But that, that worries me when we start raping and you know we know what we've done to this earth and now we're going to start doing it to our solar system so i've got a little bit of a <laughs> about that i have as well that's things, awful they, things i want to do to the moon and yeah so that's a little bit of a worry but how do we get onto psyche but yes asteroids yeah I, I think if you are interested in astrology whatsoever looking at the asteroids especially you know Ceres, palace athena vesta and juno and psyche and hygieia are really interesting ones to so look at where they lay in your astrology and then bringing in the oils to heal with them can be really interesting as well. In a nutshell, if people are really interested, really, really quickly, Ceres, I love myrrh and I love tea tree. Pallas Athena, I love manuka. Vesta, coriander seed. Uh, Juno, blue lotus. Hygieia, after our conversation with Palm Rosa, I love her with that. And Psyche, pink pepper. So have a bit of a dive into that if people want to go down a rabbit hole. I think today we have dug up the garden so much so. I didn't even that... say the thing I promised to tell you, did I? But never mind. <laughs> well, no, squeeze, squeeze it in. Let's squeeze it's it in. Long. Why not? It's, it's long. So maybe I will introduce it, but then say, well, let's dig into it more in the masterclass. But uh, I was digging around for something else, actually, for another friend who needed some help. And uh, I thought, and she said, oh, I need to try and support this argument. And I was like, but I don't think she was really asking for my help, but I just kind of took over and I was like, I can do this for you. And uh, so I thought, I know where I can find the evidence to support her argument, and that is in the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri. So these are fascinating things. They date from around about 300 BCE to around about 100 CE. Greco-Egyptian, so you would think so, Greek and Egyptian gods and goddesses, but actually in the mugs of that is like Gnostic early Christian as well. And these are spells. It's a spell book, but it's not just one book. It's like a, like a, almost like a serialised set of newspapers that came out. Uh, and so there's loads all over the world, of bits of fragments here. And so... I don't know, maybe 1970s, I think, a team of uh, people put their heads together, clever people, to translate them all. So this is a massive receptacle of information about different things, um, the ways that herbs were used, but also who the gods were, that kind of thing. Um, and they think it's because uh, the burning of the books that happens in the Acts of the Apostles, Augustus, another source, says that they were magical books when they were so they think that these were maybe maybe they were underground documents or maybe it was just like the sheer volume of them it was impossible to kill all of that information but anyway so it captured a receptacle which is there so what i have here which i won't read because it's long but i will at the at the master class is uh an egyptian and uh love spell using myrrh asking Aphrodite and Adonis to permeate the soul of the person to drive them to obsession actually when you read it 
using myrrh and how did they do that? The spell is here, tells you exactly how to do it, the words, the incantations, exactly. So I will share that on the masterclass. Wow. And so for a small fee of the masterclass, you can learn that spell. We might have to talk about some ethics when we talk about that as well, when it comes to spell crafting. Um, but yeah, remember that the link for the masterclass is down the bottom and there is a discount code there as well. So you definitely, whether you're listening or watching us, make sure you use that discount code so you get that little bargain as well. One thing that we traditionally always um, ask as well, chakra for you with the And, you know, I think base chakra, yes. Sacral chakra, yes. Solar plexus, not so much. Yeah. Heart, definitely, yes. Throat, nah. no. No, I don't think so. Yes. Third eye. Crown, also, almost certainly. Yeah. It would always be interesting doing something like anointing along the whole spine whenever you're doing some chakra work to kind of act as a bit of a bridge and a healer and that kind of thing. I would agree, yeah, the ones you were listing, I would yeah. say as well, and even down to the earth star and the incarnated chakras, those real ones that go deep into the earth and connect you to the earth now and backwards and forwards in time. Yeah, and and I can't remember what it's called now, but there's one further out from the heart chakra, isn't it? Chakra 13's out here. What the hell's the name of that? That's gone out my head. Anyway, that one, um, and I mean we've come we've come really full circle, really, because we never even went down the route of talking about how it was the holy anointing oil in the Bible, but but it was a part a, a big part of that. So yeah, right from through history, it's always been an anoint uh, an anointment to connect with the divine. So I really hope after this conversation that we've had that we've inspired people to kind of whether it be because you're excited about Christmas or because you love aromatherapy or whatever it is, I think myrrh has, to, to journey with myrrh is to step into a dark cave where the treasure is hidden within. And I would really encourage people to maybe get their myrrh out and play with it a little bit um, on the physical body, but also see, we've, we've unpacked a lot in this time. And I think there's other potentials out there that the collective will discover by all working with myrrh a lot more than they do these days. Would you agree? I, I would, and I just thought I would, I've picked out another piece that I just thought I would share. It says, of course. so everybody always, has always got their explanation of, well, what did it mean? What did these gold frankincense mean? So the interpretations of the spiritual meaning of gold as a symbol of kinship of earth uh, date back to contraselsum which was written in the second century by the ascetic Christian father, Origen of Alexandra. And he was talking to outsiders who were thinking of converting to um, Christianity. And he said, gold as a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. However, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a French abbot, who would eventually become sated, had... A, a sainted, not sainted, sainted, had a lovely uh, uh, explanation, which never caught on, but I just, it really amused me. He said, his was much more practical. He said, they gave Mary the gold to relieve her poverty, incensed against the stench of the stable, and myrrh was to put away the vermin. Mm. But that never caught on. So the, no. I think it's like I think it's, there's so many different interpretations. So just for my peace of mind, can you just quickly recount what the oils are we doing on the um, masterclass, so that people know what they're booking on to for me? Definitely, we've, we've kind of themed this one a little bit because as we head towards the holiday season, we're looking at the holiday season. The northern hemisphere is going into um, winter, so we're going to talk about immunity, and we're going to talk about the winter slash summer solstice as well. So the five oils we'll be diving into will be the queen of the oils in rose. There will be uh, also the the, queen, the divine feminine oil, myrrh. But then we've got cardamom, oregano, and thyme, which we'll be exploring in next episode before the masterclass is actually happening. So those five are going in. One other final thing I just popped in. I feel like 
there was like that grandmother that won't stop talking and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, I need to go. But yeah, go on, yeah. each angel or each zodiac sign has a governing angel. The governing angel of um, Cancerians is Muriel. And that name is said to possibly come from Mer. And so Mer also has a connection to the Cancerian angel, which of course is ruled by the moon and the connections keep going and going. I never things, knew but... that. And I'm a Cancerian, so that's my guardian angel. I never knew that. Thank you. Absolutely. There you go. Muriel. And if you're an Australian, there's a famous Australian movie called Muriel's Wedding. So we kind oh, of... I know that one. Yeah, yeah we all know that. It, it, <laughs> she's not She's not quite angelic, but you know, <laughs> they share the same name. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining us on a big journey with Merv. We hope that between us, we've definitely ignited a bit more of a passion and, you know, Sparks your interest in an oil that does seem to sit in the shadows, but maybe there's a reason she's sitting there because she's got so many secrets to share with you. We will see you for next episode of Fellowship in Essential Oils. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.